Welcome to Mac and Blue, where we introduce you to who is building Arizona, bringing you the people and businesses that shape the landscape around us. From economic development and developers, underwriters and lenders, architects and engineers, to the very builders and suppliers that bring it all together. Now let's join our hosts, Robert Johnson and JJ Levensky, aka Mac and Blue. Thank you for joining us again. I am Robert Johnson. He is J.J. Levinsky. That's the guy in front of the Mac and Blue logo that had to be the topper today. I I love it. I think it's fantastic. I'm going to do it next time, but I might do mine upside down. (laughs) Uh, And uh, how are you doing, J.J.? I'm doing great. Are you up in Vegas today? I am in beautiful Las Vegas, 10 degrees cooler than Phoenix. Um, and then uh, one more that I failed last time to get in until later on, Daryl Robinson, who is our producer, is turning the knobs and, and hitting the cues. Daryl, are you with us? Hey, there he is. I caught you off guard, but that's okay. How are you doing today, Daryl? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Daryl's the man. Uh, JJ, I'm going to kick it to you to introduce our guest today. I'm elated to be able to, to introduce Charles Week. Uh, I assume you're okay with us calling you Chuck today. Oh my gosh, please, yeah. man. All right, so <laughs> the, man, the man, the myth, the legend, Charles Chuck Marone. So for the, the listeners and viewers, he is the founder, principal, the brainchild behind Strong Towns. But I was fortunate to know him in his previous life when he was just a humble man. Um, he's still humble, but would love to give a kind of a back behind the scenes introduction of like how we met and, and why uh, I thought he would just be a wonderful guest for, for our platform on Building Arizona. So with that, I figured it out, Chuck. I think it goes back 24 years. Uh, Chuck and I met at uh, an engineering firm that we were both working for. Yes, he is a licensed engineer. Well, actually recently retired, which I'm sure he'll, <laughs> I'm, which I am sure he will opine on during our, our interview here. But um we were working at a firm. He was a, a licensed civil engineer, and I was in as a construction manager uh, on a different wing. Chuck and I were, let's just say we were contrarians, and uh, we met in the lunchroom quite often. And Chuck, I don't know if you remember it, but you and I hedged a bet on Home Depot 24 years ago. I think we should have taken that bet because we probably wouldn't have to work anymore if we would have, would have taken that bet. Um, That's right. <laughs> There's so no the cool, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So the cool part was, is he and I both went on to some different lives after that. We developed a, I, I, we weren't really friends, but we were, we were friendly colleagues. And I think we both had a respect for one another. Chuck's next firm, he had a consulting firm that worked for a lot of the municipalities in Minnesota. And by the way, for you listeners, he is based in Brainerd, Minnesota, which, where I live for 14 and a half years. It's God's green earth in the middle of Minnesota, surrounded by lakes and the, the playground for the rich, famous, and the indifferent, as I like to say. But Chuck was cool enough that his company uh, was consulting for many, many municipalities in the upper Midwest because of his civil uh, background and his urban planning. I do believe you have a master's degree in, in urban planning. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, I was fortunate enough to be on a planning and zoning commission where Chuck and his firm were, you know, the whatever the, the owner's agent, if you want to call it that. 
So it was so fun. I got to know him again at a different level. And that's what rekindled a lot of our our discussions and friendship about, about how we want to do things differently in our respective industries. I then moved to Arizona and Chuck went on. At about that time, I think you had started Strong Towns a little bit beforehand. And now that's turned into a commercial success and kind of a a precursor to a lot of municipalities and an organic movement across the country and the world of how to build better towns, build strong towns. So hopefully for you listeners and viewers, that gives a a, kind of just an insight of my respect for him and why I thought that he would just be a wonderful guest today. So with that, I'd love to just kick it to Chuck and kind of in an hour, talk a little bit, give a little background and then maybe dive into what was the reasoning behind starting Strong Towns? And then what does that mean in today's society? And then eventually, um, the main reason I wanted him to then take it into maybe a, a, a part two or part three before we wrap it up today is with our hyper growth in Arizona. Um, and Chuck, if I assume you know this, that you know we are probably one of the three biggest economic booms in the world right now. Um, other than maybe like Dallas, Fort Worth, there, there, there's nothing that's as crazy as what's going on in Arizona right now. And I think you would have a wonderful insight to what's good and what's potentially dangerous about all that hyper growth. So with that, if you want to kick it off, brother. Yeah. Hey, JJ. It's so (laughs) nice to, to chat with you. Seriously, we were the weird contrarians that the engineering firm we worked at didn't know what to do with. I I was, um, I started there right out of college when I was 22. And I think the next youngest engineer was 35. And they did not know what to do with me. They're like, this guy is really weird. And the the person I bonded with was you, JJ. We we would, like you said, we would, we would hang on the lunchroom. It was one of these very, you know, if you weren't there at eight o'clock and you left before five o'clock, you were really frowned on. And so I made it a point to show up at like 10 after eight in the morning. I always wore my Air Jordans and stuff because I just wanted to be a, I, I wear a button-up shirt and all that, but I was a little bit different. JJ, you were odd too in terms of the culture there, you know? Still is pretty odd. Yeah, it's well, interesting. <laughs> the, the culture was a lot. I mean, we did at that firm, we did a lot of, muni- we did municipal engineering, very like, you know, button down, very vanilla kind of stuff. We did a lot of work with developers, uh, we we built home de- you know the Home Depot site layout the Arby's the all the all the big box stores in in a fast growing kind of suburban area we were working on that and I I remember just sitting with you and we did we did talk Home Depot and we did make some bets and we were I, I think two guys who were thinking about the future in a way that was different than most of the people there uh, but we also I think the reason you always resonated with me and I think we found it easy to chat is we both had a certain discomfort with the machine going on around us, right? Correct. I liked the people that we worked with. I mean, they were genuinely nice people, but the machine that we were in didn't make any sense. We were out doing projects that we got paid. It was a job. It was our first job out of college. Got a lot of experience. But when we step back and, and look at it, you know, building the new Walmart in order to close the old Walmart you know, for a community that I was, you know, I, I grew up on the farm that my great great grandparents homesteaded. I I still live in this city. I care deeply about it. I didn't see a lot of the work that we were doing being beneficial long term to the community. And so, 
I left in 2000. I, the last project I worked at there was the Menards. I don't know if you were still around for Menards or not, but I, I, uh, I don't know if you remember Derek Johnson, but Derek and I, I remember sitting in a car with him saying, there's no way that the county is going to approve this Menards permit. Our job was to go in and, and kind of make the case for why they should. Both of us said they shouldn't. They shouldn't approve this thing because it's right. a horrible project. And Chuck, let me just interject for the for most of the people in the Southwest, they won't know what Menards is, but oh, Menards, okay. Menards is a more Midwestern version of a regional Walmart that has it's like Tractor Supply meets Home Depot meets Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it was a but very, go ahead. No, go ahead. it's a it's a very uniquely Midwestern kind of thing, right? Right. Um, it has its own culture. It wouldn't work in Arizona. We usually pair Menards. Here in Brainerd, it's paired with a place called Culver's, yes. which sells butter burgers and cheese yep. curds. So yep. that, that gives you a sense of what's going on at Menards. Menards was going to be built in a wetland on a nasty piece of property that was going to cost millions to provide service to. And Derek and I went into this meeting, and our job representing this firm was to explain why the, why the, 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 the council should approve Menards. And we both agreed we would give it our best shot, but we're not going to push it. We're not going to make it big because this was a stupid project. We went in and made the case and they're like, oh yeah, let's do it. And they approved it. And we walked out of there going, I, I don't even know what we just did. Like that was one of the dumbest projects I've ever been involved in. <laughs> I wound up leaving and going back to school. I did get a planning degree. And while I was at college, started a community growth institute. That was the firm that I had founded that uh, did planning work for cities around Minnesota. And it was in doing that work that, yeah, you and I crossed paths a, a number of times. I advised, and my, and my firm, we had a, a bunch of different planners working for us, advised cities, generally poor cities or smaller cities that couldn't afford their own staff. We would supplement their staff with professionals to help them process permits and be part of that, that growth machine. And again, kept running into the idea that the projects we were doing generated transactions. They generated work, right? They generated a lot of business. Uh, they generated permit fees. They generated engineering fees. Uh, they created new tax base, but also that came with it, this huge overhang of public sector promises. Public sector promises that nobody in the process thought of or accounted for or bothered to say, is this a good investment? And I'll give you one example, and then I'll pause, and we can just take this wherever you guys would like. I, I worked on one project where I was doing the planning work, and the planning work, you know, we checked all the boxes. A friend of mine from the engineering firm that you and I worked at was doing the engineering work, and again, checked all the boxes. And this project was a, a go, but we stepped back and looked at it and said, this, this doesn't make any sense. We brought in an economic development consultant, and I was confident that this guy was going to come in and say, if we do this project, the city will make this much money. And I just, I didn't think we would make enough to kind of justify the risk. We came in and analyzed it. And this was a, a project up in Pequot Lakes, Minnesota, about 20 miles north of where I live. Every single scenario, if it worked out the optimum that it could have worked out, in other words, all the land that we had projected to develop, developed perfectly. The city was going to lose on every single option on the table. The, the public sector, the public uh, representatives, the taxpayers was going to invest millions of dollars and wind up not just losing the millions of dollars, you know, not just getting like negative return, 
uh, but actually committing long-term to way more uh, expenditures than they were ever going to get in revenue. And that was one of these eye-opening things to me because cities work in silos. They work with engineers doing engineering work and planners doing planning work. And you'll have economic people who do the, the finance, but generally the finance is all about cash flow. Does this cash flow? It's never, does this improve our balance sheet? Does this make us wealthier? Does this make us better off? As soon as I cracked that nut up in Pequot Lakes and started looking at other projects I had worked on over the years and other cities where I was working on projects, I couldn't do it anymore. Like I'm like, this is this is all ruining these places that I really love. And that, you know, thus was born Strong Towns. I started writing a blog about it and uh, bam, everything kind of went crazy. Well, if, if I can interject, just to have you explain something that, that has intrigued me is um, there's a there's a comment made, America's post-war pattern of development and then the suburban experiment. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, that, that was a term that I came to over a long period of time because growing up as an engineer, a, a young engineer learning how to do things, you, you, you're kind of given a set of standards, a set of knowledge and a set of understandings mm-hmm. about how things are built that seem to descend like directly from Genesis. You know, like here's, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the way it's always been done. And I remember sitting in the conference room at the engineering firm that, that JJI had worked at. I remember asking questions and being told, this is the way it's always been done. Mm-hmm. When I went back to planning school and I got a planning degree, again, a, a lot of what we were taught was history began in 1945 and just kind of proceeded from there. So everything that we were taught as like the standard approach was stuff that was, you know, post-World War II, post-Great Depression. It was all based on you know, the Interstate Highway Act being a reality, the GI uh-huh. Bill, the subsidizing of suburban tract housing. Uh, the idea of of big box stores and malls and strip malls. It was only when I started to ask the question, why does none of this works out financially? Like I couldn't find anything that I had worked on that worked out financially. What does work? That I came to understand how different post-war development was to really thousands and thousands of years of human history of how we built and developed places uh, all over the world. And this, this, this break point, I started to call the suburban experiment as a way to drive home the idea that this isn't the way it's always been done. This, this is the way that us as modern people see it. This is the world around us. But this point in time is a massive deviation from really the, the, the legacy of city building, the legacy of community building that evolved out of thousands of years of human experimentation. This is a brand new way of doing things. It's very young. And, and let me just put it this way. We're having told that as engineers, the engineering profession, we had a just joke, it's the world's second oldest profession. So take that mm-hmm. for what it is. It, you know, we look at like bridges built by Romans and say, look, engineers have been around a long time. That's very true. Engineering has been around a long time. Traffic engineering is ridiculously young profession. It, it's been around three generations max. It, 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 the, the, the ideas are brand new. They've not been time tested. They're not rigorously developed. They were developed ad hoc very quickly in a, in a fast growth 
kind of era after World War II. It's a very young profession. And uh, that profession drives our, our entire development pattern today. So with that, Chuck, let's go down, let's go down this rabbit hole for a while because I think this is where the the, the listener and viewer can really glean off of your expertise. Let's come back to that. Daryl, let's uh, let you take it for a quick break because this one's going to take a while. So let's do a quick commercial break and I'll come back to that question, Chuck. Tory Contracting, your full service Division 9 contractor. Tory Contracting operates with a smaller, hands-on team. This cohesive structure results in superior workmanship and economical solutions. We deliver projects with unsurpassed commitment to quality and stewardship of budget. Tory Contracting, small enough to listen, big enough to deliver. Okay, so Chuck, you alluded to this is what uh, allowed you, and uh, it was a precursor to the to Strong Towns, and then the book. We don't have time today to go over everything in the book because you actually have two books out: Strong Towns and the Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, which um, is wonderful. I've you know I've read both of them actually. I Thanks, think man. Twice. twice. Really, that means that means a lot. Thank you. Yeah. And, <laughs> And, and 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 yes and no I didn't read them to fall asleep I, I I read them to be to to you know gain knowledge but what I love I think I think you telling it in a story format is do do three things one tell us a little bit like about the book without getting into the minutia of it of you know the why and the how but then give us two examples or give the listeners two examples of an experiment gone bad that you can resonate with like a, a town that really screwed it up. And then on the flip side, maybe you could give a testimonial of how you, your team, how the Strong Towns platform allowed a town to rebound off of a previous mistake, or where they at least, you know, gleaned your knowledge and then turned it into something that you're very proud of in a Strong Towns representative. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's that's great. A big part of Strong Towns and a big part of why I write the way that I write, and it is it is conversational. I I, I try not to write in a technical way. There's a lot of people out there who do that. I remember in the early days as I was trying to figure this stuff out because I had to break out of conventional wisdom. I remember sitting with my dad and trying to explain it to my dad. My dad is a a farmer, uh, worked at the paper mill, uh, went back to school when I was uh, in in middle school and became a teacher. So he's a, a, a smart man, but one of these like street smart guys. And I remember telling him, a little bit about some of the ideas uh, that would become strong towns. And he's like, that, that doesn't make sense. You know how dads are. They like, don't, they don't let, you know, what do you know? Like you're saying like, everybody's wrong with, you know, like I love love you. I love you, Chuck, but you're one step away from the loony bin. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what it was. And so when I started to write the blog that, that, you know, was, would eventually become the strong towns media site. I felt like I was always writing to my dad. I needed to explain things to my dad in a way that my dad would understand them. And that meant it, it couldn't be technical jargon. It had to be very plain spoken uh, language. I think as an example, you know, we, we look at the Taco John's here in, in Brainerd, which has kind of become like the iconic strong towns. I have people who stop at Taco John's around the country now and take photos. You all don't have Taco John's in Arizona. The the way I describe Taco John's, and JJ, you'll appreciate this, it's like Norwegian Mexican food. Yeah. So a lot of like mild cheddar cheeses and that kind of thing. 
we had a block here in Brainerd uh, that was run down and blighted. It was uh, in poor condition. It had been built in the 1920s. And we got that block torn down so that a new Taco John's could be built. The Taco John's took up now the whole block. It had all the parking, signs, entrances, drive-throughs, the right floor area ratios. It met all the building code, ADA compliant, all this stuff. They actually put it on the front of the economic development brochure for that year because it was such a you know, successful project. We got rid of a block of blight, and now we have a new uh, you know, thing that meets all of our requirements. The only problem was that the old block is worth 78% more than the new block. Hmm. In other words, the junk that we tore down, the, the junky rundown block of pawn shops and liquor stores and, 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 and you know what have you, was actually worth more than the Taco John's that was put in its place. We devalued the tax base in doing this. And, and we could argue this, but I think it looks new, so it looks more prosperous. It looks more like success. Sure. Uh, the old block looked run down. But, you know, the old block employed more people. It had more local ownership. That local ownership used more local institutions. It banked locally. People bank locally. They use local accountants. They use local ad agencies. We went and documented all of this. The new Taco John's is a corporation. They have a their headquarters in Wyoming. They don't hire local accountants. They don't hire put their money in local banks and that kind of thing. And so, what we did is we systematically devalued our tax base, while at the same time kind of gutting our core uh, professional capacity within the community to grow and be prosperous and wealthy. We did this because we have a misunderstanding of what it means to, to experience wealth and growth and prosperity. I, 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 a lot of places have learned from this. I've been using this example uh, and similar examples around the country now for, for over a decade. And we have seen places who have gone in now and changed their zoning codes. Our zoning code here in Brainerd only allowed that type of development. If you wanted anything to happen on that property, uh, you were going to have to rip down a block and, and build in that way. And, and, you know, thus the properties that were there weren't maintained because they were all non-conforming buildings. They were all non-conforming structures. The, the, the hurdles you would have to go to to build on those properties was just enormous. We have seen many, many cities now recognize this problem, which is a, a kind of a universal problem uh, here in North America, and go and change their codes uh, so that people can make use of their existing properties. They can they can fix them up. They can improve them. They can add second stories. They can do things uh, to build and grow wealth in place. And and that's I'm not going to say that nobody did that a decade ago, but I feel like Strong Towns has really made the case financially for why that increment of business, why that scale of development is really important to the economic success of our cities. So, so I mean, I guess I'm going to simplify it, but for or some maybe the the most profitable is not the best for the community or for the individual holding the property in in many many cases. Well, it 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 depends. I mean, if you look at if you look at the Taco John's example, I think there's a bunch of ways to understand this. I mean, the the thing that makes it a great example is that the costs are fixed, right? The city right. cost for these two things is the exact same. There's the same amount of road, the same amount of pipe, the same amount of sidewalk. So it's not like we're investing more in one property than the other. It's the exact same. But what you see is a little bit the effect that you have, you know, 
if you're selling pizza, you know, if I buy a whole pizza, I might pay 15 bucks. If I buy eight slices of pizza individually, I might pay 25 bucks. Cities experience this in the same way. We actually perversely give a discount to properties. When you aggregate a bunch of properties together, we lower your taxes, we lower your uh, your rate, even though the, the rate of providing you know, fixed services doesn't change at all. It's kind of a perversion that the tax system creates. And so if you build a Walmart, you will actually get a lower tax rate per foot uh, than if you build a really nice uh, you know, neighborhood corner store. You'll pay a premium in taxes per square foot on that corner store. And what that means is that we get a lot of Walmarts and we don't get a lot exactly. of corner stores. Even though the corner store is not only, I think, scaled to the community in a way that builds wealth, right? Like the Walmart, especially when I look here, sucks wealth out of the community where the mm-hmm. locally owned corner store doesn't. But from a tax-based standpoint, that corner store is way more valuable, way like infinitely more valuable than that Walmart is. Correct. Yeah. Oh, no, that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I love that that tie in to that because that's what that's the way I was seeing this so it, it when you go back to doing it this way rel, in a relatively short amount of time just a few decades it, it appears to me that we have not looked at things for the betterment of a community necessarily but for getting more vehicles on the road or you know let's you know, let's make this a six lane as opposed to uh, changing the development in the area or rezoning in the area. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I would I would actually say it slightly different. And I, I think that what, what happened after World War II, and this is why I use that term suburban experiment, I think it's important to recognize the challenge that they had. The challenge that they had after World War II was to stay out of the Great Depression after demobilizing for, from a war. Sure. You know, we, we went through the Great Depression uh, the thing that we are taught in middle school that got us out of, you know, quote unquote, the Great Depression was World War II. <laughs> how do we get out? Of, how did World War II get us out of the Depression? Well, we took millions of working age people who were largely unemployed, shipped them off overseas to kill and die, right? We took millions of other people and put them to work in factories, building all the planes and munitions and, and what have you. When the war ended, the economists around FDR, the economists uh, ultimately around Truman said, like, this is not going to go well. We're going to demobilize all these troops. We're going to shut down these industries and we're going to go right back into the Great Depression because nothing has changed about our economy. Instead, what we did is we redirected all of that capacity into building a new version of America. Let's go out and build the interstate highway system. Let's go out and build frontage roads. Let's go out and build subdivisions. Let's build strip malls and and franchise restaurants and big box stores and malls. Let's build, build, build. And what happened to us is that our measurements of success shifted from being how do we create wealth, enduring wealth in a community, to how much transactions do we have? How many vehicle miles traveled do we have? How right. many new lane miles can we build? How many miles of pipe can we create? How many new housing starts can we have? If you look at the federal government, the federal government basically takes home a percentage of the GDP as their tax revenue every year. The same with most state governments. They, they right. run on, and, and GDP is just like a measurement of transactions. So if you buy from me and I buy from you, they're going to get a, a share of all that, and that's really good. But if you are self-sufficient and I'm self-sufficient and we don't have to do anything, the government goes broke. 
And so our economic system was shifted and designed to create as many transactions as possible. What that did is it induced local governments, it induced local communities, it induced local banks, local chambers of commerce, all of us to shift our focus from what is good for the long-term balance sheet and health of this community to how do we generate the most transactions possible. And and you see that, uh, you know, you do that for two and a half, three generations, and you wind up with a lot of transactions, a lot of growth, a, a lot of pipe in the ground, a lot of streets to maintain, a lot of stuff that's been built, but not enough wealth in the community to actually take care of all of it. That, and, and that's where we're at today. Yeah, and you've kind of made it a, a worse place to live in many cases. In a lot of ways. I think what you've done, you know, we, we look at rising tax rates, we look at mm-hmm. rising debt levels, uh, we look at, you know, a certain desperation around needing that next transaction, that next amount of growth. You look at those things as being things that compel us forward but they've also created kind of a trap for us because, you know, you look at the Phoenix area, for example, Mm -hmm. if the Phoenix area experienced a decade of low growth, you know, which historically through human history, places have had times where they've grown and then times where they've stagnated. And that's a normal thing. I mean, it's not sunny every day, right? Right. Some days it rains, some days it's uh, cold, some days it's warm, you know, the seasons change, economic cycles change. If you had a decade of just modest growth, the Phoenix economy would collapse. It it is is incapable, particularly in the public sector, from supporting itself without accelerating levels of growth. And then that's just long-term, not a viable way to live. How do you fix that? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I now mean, I know that's into- a big question, but and you can go go ahead and go on, but that is something no, I want to get to. No, it's okay. I, I think, you know, part of it is recognizing where we're at, right? Uh, part of it is recognizing that we're in a cycle where uh, we go out and build more reflexively, even though we struggle to maintain what we have. The infrastructure bill that was just passed at the federal government identified in its in its very text identified 173,000 miles of roadway currently in poor condition. That, that's a that's a massive volume of roadway, and you're like, okay, but we just passed the largest infrastructure bill in human history, right? That bill only maintains 23% of that roadway that's that's already in poor condition. And it does that over a decade. So a decade from now, after we've spent this massive amount of money on infrastructure, we will actually have more lane miles of roadway in poor condition than we had before we started. I I think if we can recognize that reality, uh, we can uh, say to ourselves, the first thing we need to do is, is stop building in this way. We need to stop the idea that uh, expanding our highways, expanding our roads, adding more public sector liabilities is a good thing. And then I think we can have a mature conversation about what it means to actually make better use of the infrastructure we have. Phoenix is notorious for being very spread out. If you get out of your car and walk around for any amount of time, you'll realize, A, it's very hot, Mm-hmm. <laughs> As a Minnesotan, uh, is extraordinarily hot. We're having a hot day here today, and it's 75 degrees. Oh, please. So Phoenix is mm-hmm. uh, is bizarrely warm for me. But you also realize that things are really spread out. Yeah. Even at the block level, they're very spread out. Mm-hmm. And all of that space represents 
a public sector liability, a public investment in infrastructure that is paying no return. In other words, it has no corresponding value being created for the community. And if we were looking at the city as a business, which I think in many ways we need to have that conversation, if we had a business where we had a lot of assets that were non-productive, that were not producing revenue for us, we would say, how do we get more revenue out of that investment? And, and that's the exact conversation we need to have at the public sector level. Makes sense. Glad to have you back, JJ. Sorry, everyone. Uh, apparently, my landlord, i.e. me, didn't pay the bills, so the Wi-Fi went out. <laughs> Thanks, Daryl, <laughs> yeah. for getting me back on the show. So I, I picked up on what you were saying, Chuck, um, and I think I know where you went with it. Did you Were you able, while I was gone, to give a, a good example of, of a municipality that you maybe have helped take a strong towns application or did you yeah. claim? Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. We, we talked a little bit about how places have been changing their codes. I didn't give any in specific, but I just said there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of places that we've worked with that have now modified and changed their, their zoning codes to allow the type of development, you know, to that, that the Taco John's replaced to right. actually thrive instead of going into decline. Now, what about did you did you start down the Strode conversation, or were you just yeah. getting into that? Oh, yeah. Okay, no. Okay, all right. No, well, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll let I'll let you I'll let you keep going, and then when you feel it's appropriate, uh, just take go right over that dam and talk about the Strode. Well, the the Strode is an interesting one because I I never I don't know my kids. You'll get a kick out of this, uh, JJ. My my kids asked me once. We were sitting around, and they said, "Dad, are are you famous?" And I said, no, I said in a, in a small group of people, yes, but not like generally, but as, as kids, they do Google searches and, you know, my name shows up as having invented this word, the strode. And they're like, dad, that's, you know, cause that's a big deal. If you count your, um, fame in terms of Facebook followers, like, uh, like teenagers are apt to do, you know, Instagram followers, they're like, dad, you're. You're verified on Google. You've made it. Um, <laughs> so this the strode is something that I, I didn't set out to like invent this word, but I, I did try to explain a phenomena that I saw around me. This idea that as, as engineers, we build infrastructure to serve multiple purposes and it serves not, none of those purposes well. I, I describe a strode as the futon of transportation. So if you think of a futon being an uncomfortable couch that makes into an uncomfortable bed, you know something we all had in college, uh, but but don't really have in our, our houses because uh, you know there's better things than a futon. Uh, a strode tries to do two things at once. It tries to be street and road. It tries to both uh, be a place that builds wealth, has investment along it, but it also tries to move vehicles very quickly, like a road. If we look at a road, a great road connects two places. It allows you to get, go from one place to another very, very quickly. And by very quickly, we're talking, you know, more than 50 miles an hour, more than 60 miles an hour, a, 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 a stretch of investment that will actually move you someplace in a reasonable amount of time. When we build strodes, what we wind up is traveling somewhere around 30 or 40 or 50 miles an hour. It's not fast enough to actually get somewhere. You've got a lot of traffic signals. You've got a lot of things that slow you down. And so as a road, it, it fails, despite the, the massive amount of investment we put into it. 
if you look at a street, a street is about building wealth. It's about creating a place. It's about getting that private investment to come in and invest, have a good private return that, that generates the wealth in that place that will support and sustain your community. When we look at a strode, what we see is that the development all becomes spread out. Uh, everybody has their own parking lot. Everybody has their own entrance. You wind up with this development pattern that is very dispersed and very spread out. And your return per foot of investment goes way, way down. A lot of public sector investment for not much private sector investment. And so a strode winds up to be this very nasty place that costs a lot of money, provides a negative return on investment, uh, has fast moving traffic, but yet a lot of complexity in it, a lot of random turns, random stops, random entrances and exits. And so it winds up to be also a really dangerous place uh, to be. The sad thing is, this is the default way we build. We can go around Phoenix, we can go around Tucson, we can go all over Arizona, and th this is predominantly what is being built there. You build very few streets, uh, you build very few roads, but you build a lot of strodes and they're just sucking your community dry. I see a common thread here is to an, an urgency to build smarter. Just, yeah. just do things different. And, and yeah. you know, we talk about it in our industry all the time. It changes hard. You know, when, when, when plumbing went from copper to PEX, nobody wanted to change to PEX. And now it's everywhere. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it, it's the same scenario. I mean, it's, it's part of a human nature. But what do we do to build better, build smarter? Robert, I, I love the question. And I think it's very good. I'm going to give a little bit of nuance to it and push back just a, a tiny bit. Please. Because the term smart is used a lot when it comes to growth. There's an there's organization called Smart Growth. Uh, there's a lot of uh, ideas around, you know, smart growth. And it, it creates this, uh, I think, conversation that is not very healthy. Okay. Um, we never use the term smart. We, we just don't. Because current development patterns, the suburban experiment, the post-war way of building is actually really intelligent. It's really smart. It does what it's designed to do really well, which is to create a lot of transactions, a lot of growth. The people who engage in it are not dumb people. I, JJ and I weren't dumb when we worked for the engineering firm and we were out doing this stuff. We were very, very smart. We knew what we were doing. Right. Um, I, I, I think it's important to recognize uh, the rationality behind the current approach uh, over the short term. Because if we don't recognize that, we, 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 we will be blind to the trade-offs we're making and we'll actually do things that I think don't get us where we need to go. What we need is a, a system of building and, and investment that acknowledges that we have built in the horizontal direction as much as we need to. We actually have more infrastructure in place than we can possibly maintain right now. And so what needs to happen is a, a generation, two generations, more, going back and saying, how do we make better use of this stuff we already have? I'm going to tell you something, and it might be a little bit of a disappointment, but that's a brand new body of knowledge. Uh, there's people who work Absolutely in this. And, and yeah, you guys certainly do some of this work. Others do some of this work, but you're doing it against the current, right? Like yeah. you're, you're, you're doing it against the, 
The zoning codes are not set up for you. The building codes are not set up for you. The financing mechanisms are not set up for you. The insurance industry is not set up for you. The secondary market is not set up for you. Uh, everything you, you are in order to do this work, fighting a constant battle against the system. That system needs to evolve and change so that the type of work you're doing, the type of work that goes in and makes better use of our existing investments is actually the default supported by the system. And the stuff that would have us add new roads, add new frontage roads, add new sewer and water, build new subdivisions, that becomes the, the, the battling upstream part. And quite frankly, that, that looks like an entirely different practice. That looks like an entirely different model of development. Yeah, I agree. JJ? Daryl, let's take a quick break for ad and then I'll come back and ask a few questions of Chuck. How's that? There comes a time when dreams become a reality, when you see your vision materialize into a true work of art. And the only way to get there is to choose a general contractor who shares that same vision and knows how to bring it to life. At Blue Wave, we aren't so big that we've forgotten where we've come from, and we aren't so small that we can't care for your projects regardless of their size. When your vision deserves safety, perfection, timeliness, and expertise in order to become a reality, trust Blue Wave to get it done right the first time. So Chuck, I just wanna have you go down this area. You, you touched on it about the systems and evolving. We're really just educating people about the paradigm. Can you let the listeners and viewers know how much of your time and with, with Strong Towns now, are you on the road talking about that and educating uh, mayors and economic development directors and things of that nature about just seeing the system for what it is instead of what it isn't? Um, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? This is what we do. I mean, Strong Towns is a nonprofit organization uh, that uses media to do advocacy work. And so we publish uh, three articles a day. We've got three different podcast streams. Uh, we do a lot of video work. We do a lot of this kind of stuff. So like you invited me on the show and I'm like, I would absolutely love to do this because this is the kind of thing we do to help expose more people to our message. Uh, I travel around the country, obviously took some time off during COVID, but I had the book come out last year and I've been on the road, you know, two, three times a month since then. Next week, I'm going to Malibu to give a speech. The week after I'll be in Sacramento and, uh, and Petaluma. So, you know, uh, stay very busy. But it's all doing this. It's, it's all sharing these ideas. The, the thing that is remarkable is that I, I feel in many ways like I'm explaining how a paperclip works, right? Or how a, a post-it note works. And in, some, in a lot of ways, when we can talk about this with public officials, when we can talk about this with uh, city staff members or, or, or advocates in a community, the light instantly comes on. That I've got a good friend named Joe Minicozzi who runs a, a firm called Urban3. They do a lot of the 3D mapping that we share on our, our site, showing where the highest levels of financial productivity are in a city. And he, him and I wind up in a lot of places speaking together. And he talks about people's head exploding. And, and, and that's actually the, the experience that I have too. When you watch people who have been like me, I, I think like you to a degree, you know, years ago, kind of struggling to, in the morass of trying to do this day in and day out, understand why it doesn't make sense, why it's not working, why these pieces don't come together. And when you can lay it out to people and explain it in, in a very simple way, it is like you're explaining a post-it note. 
because it becomes obvious. It becomes something you can't unsee. Uh, it becomes very self-evident. And then the fun starts, right? Because then people start asking the questions that you guys, like, what do we do now? How do we do things differently? And we say, well, welcome to the party. Like, well, well, welcome to the party because everything needs to change to a degree. Let's start where you're at. Let's fix what we can. But yes, you're right. Everything needs to change. And, and that's that's where the fun is. Robert, do you have any questions? No, the whole head explode part, it, it has me... Totally. And I had, I had done quite a bit of reading and, and, and show prep uh, for this and, and found many of these ideas fascinating. So I'm the guy asking those questions. Well, this all makes absolute sense. So now what do we do? It's starting to come together in my head. And, and unfortunately, you're right. It, it, I can never unhear this. And so yeah. everything that now I'm thinking, the things going through my mind, I, everywhere I look now, everywhere I'm, I'm going to constantly be looking at things through a different lens. So, uh, no, I'm sitting here with mind blown, JJ. I, I tell what? people to, to get out of their car, right? Go, go to any neighborhood that you're familiar with. Get out of your car and walk. And if you look around and you see fire hydrant, you see a manhole cover, you see, you know, probably not stormwater drainage where you're at the same mm -hmm. way we have. But, uh, you know, you see a paved road and you see a sidewalk. When you take a step, just count 5,000. That's, that's how much per foot you've just spent to, to build that. So if you take a, a, you know, a good healthy step, you're talking two and a half feet, three feet, say 10,000, 12,000 in your mind, 10,000, 20,000, 40,000. You, you, you look adjacent and look at the tax base and just ask yourself a question. If we tax that tax base, how, however, we, we, you know, evolve our tax system, whether it's sales tax or property tax or fees or what have you, can we squeeze this much money out of that property? And if the answer is no, a lot of times when you'll be walking doing this, there'll be nothing adjacent to you, absolutely nothing. That should startle people. That, that should really wake you up because it demonstrates how insolvent our cities are. In, infill is, is what a, a word that comes to my mind immediately, especially here in Arizona, because we don't build up, we build out. And, and unfortunately, I mean, there's so much vacant land, even within our downtown sectors, that's amazing. And so it's making me look at all of that much differently. Let's talk about infill for a second, because planners, planners love the term infill, right? Mm -hmm. You go talk to your local planning zoning people, they'll, they'll be all about infill. But they're talking about infill being, we're going to deliver similar products on right. land that's been overlooked. What we talk about at Strong Towns is thickening up neighborhoods, mm -hmm. taking neighborhoods and actually thickening them up so that they evolve to become more productive. Sometimes that involves infill, traditional infill, the way we talk about it. But mm -hmm. sometimes it involves the, uh, the widow who is struggling to maintain the roof on her house, doesn't have the cash uh, to fix it, can convert her place into a duplex and use that rental income to fix the roof. That, that was a very common thing to do mm -hmm. before this suburban experiment. So the, people use their homes in unique ways like that all the time. We disallow that now. We disallow it in our zoning codes. We disallow it in the way we finance buildings. Uh, we disallow it with neighborhood associations and everything else uh, that restricts that kind of thing at the local level. Just freeing that up would allow individuals to uh, respond to stress and opportunity in the market in novel ways that would 
you know, make housing more affordable, provide more options for people, give people more wealth. So that gets beyond infill, right? Beyond what planners would see as like typical infill towards a very bottom-up approach to shifting neighborhood development patterns in a way that benefits people. Yeah, absolutely. So it, again, it's use, It's not necessarily doing it in the, the way that we always done it or the way that we have done it in the last few decades. But, and I've almost used the, that S word again, um, <laughs> but, but it's all right. Making it better, building it better and much more effectively. JJ. No, go ahead, Chuck. What were you going to say? I was going to say, let, let me throw this way of thinking out to you, uh, Robert. Um, if we went back to early 1900s America, cities would have what would be a, a town architect or a town planner. And their job would, would, would not be to administer a zoning code or administer you know, architectural standards or what have you. Their job would be to build wealth in the community. How do I help assemble all the different things in a way that's going to make the community wealthier? Because wealthier you know, equates to more prosperous, having more capacity, more ability to do things. It doesn't mean having wealthy people. It means having a collection of properties that exceeds the cost of providing service to it, thus building wealth in the community. Correct. How do we do that? If you go to today and look at the way city halls are organized, you will have an engineer who builds streets and an infrastructure system. You will have a planner who administers codes. You will have a, a, a city economic development official who pays businesses to move into town and tries to make transactions happen. You will have a, a bifurcated approach segmented into hierarchies and silos that is designed to replicate a pattern of development over and over and over. We need to shift from that type of process, which, by the way, is very efficient. A lot of people say local government's not efficient. Local government's really, really efficient. They're efficient at doing something over and over and over again. We actually need to shift from that efficiency model to a model that is based on how do we build wealth in this community. And, and that's, a, that's a different area of expertise, one that we have, you know, for the most part lost. But I think we could get back very easily if we, uh, if we shifted things. Chuck, if you can, um, and I apologize, everyone, for my technical difficulties today. Chuck, do you have a copy of the second book behind you at all? Yeah, I think I do. Yeah, up here. Um, if you don't mind, hold it up. And we, <laughs> we, we only have like 10 minutes left. But could you yeah. could you share with the, with the audience what precipitated that book and what it means to the listener? Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because when I did the first book, um, I struggled for a long time to do it because there was so much that I wanted to, to talk about and write about. And so I actually pitched a five volume series to the publisher, uh, splitting up these topics. Um, I'm under contract for the third one right now, which is going to be on housing. But the second one was always designed to be about transportation. So it allowed me to simplify the first book down to just city finance and, and how cities are built and the history of cities. I, I wanted to write the second one around this, this tragedy that had occurred in a city where I was speaking. I was invited to speak in Springfield, Massachusetts. And the day that I was there, uh, a group of neighborhood activists brought me out and showed me this street. And they said, the city just redid this. It's really, really dangerous. I looked at it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Uh, someone's going to die here. 
I went and gave my talk. I went back uh, to my hotel room, turned on the TV, and a little girl had died crossing the street uh, in that exact spot that I had been in earlier that day. This is a tragedy that's repeated thousands of times every year. Um, There's nothing unique about it except the fact that I was there. And over the course of the subsequent six years, there were many, many times where we tried to get, I, I was part of a group that was trying to get the city to take some action to change this, take some just reasonable steps to uh, to address this. And they wouldn't, they refused to. And they refused to for all the kind of obstinate reasons that engineers uh, often uh, refuse to do things. But mainly because, you know, the street for them was not, even though it was in the core of their downtown, across from the big public library, uh, it, it was, you know, had all these kind of features that made it part of a neighborhood. The goal of the engineer was to move cars very quickly through the center of town. I wound up writing this book using that tragedy as a, a literary device to explore all the ways that traffic engineering is a brand new profession and why the practice of it here in the United States is not consistent with building wealth and building prosperous places and, and actually not doing the things that we, uh, I think as, as non-engineers maybe assume that, uh, is, is going on and is happening. Subsequent to this book coming out, another woman was killed in the exact same spot uh, as the book I wrote about. But, um, the, the, we can say the light at the end of the, the tunnel is that the city has now gone out and is fixing the street. In fact, yesterday, uh, the project just began to, uh, to fix this street uh, permanently based on three months of, uh, of temporary kind of stuff that they put up. So yeah, it's a very urgent thing, but it's one that is um, you know, very common and experienced. In, it's, a, it's a universal problem in North America, uh, just that Springfield was a, a great literary device to explain it to everybody. Robert and I could ask you questions for four more hours, but We're almost up on time, but I wanted to kind of pose a question where it's shameless self-promotion for you, but not not for Chuck and Strong Towns, but for what you're trying to be emblematic for and the education piece. So for the mayors and the economic development directors and all the people at the local units of government that might be looking or or watch or listening or watching on, you know, give give the audience something that they can follow on Strong Towns, both you the books. I'm just talk about it for just a few more minutes of how you can, how they can reach you and that you do actually still do speaking arrangements. And, and I believe you still will consult with, with uh, government agencies to help them. Is that correct? Well, no consulting. <laughs> and, and just because there's so much other stuff to be done, right? Like right. Uh, I had to walk away from consulting a while ago because uh, every time we dug in deep in one place, the, the movement itself started to lose momentum. And so we're very focused on on building that movement so that when public officials, when other people want to make change, there's an outpouring, there's an army of people around them ready to help out. And so our website, strongtowns.org, is the best place to go. We, we publish three times a day, every weekday. We've got three different podcast streams. If you look us up on YouTube or really on any social media platform, we've got a presence where we're starting to have this conversation. Uh, we started this program a while back called Local Conversations, but we've been putting a lot of energy into it this year. These are groups. It, it started spontaneously. People started to form their own local strong towns group. They'd say, you know, we're we're strong towns. I, I think there's one in Tempe. Um, you know, we're strong towns Tempe. 
we're like, well, what is that? And, uh, you know, it's just people who hang out and talk strong towns and how do we, how do we make these things operative in our place? So we formalized that into a program. We now have over a hundred local conversations going on around the country. And it's, it's one of the ways where people want to get involved in their place. We're supporting that program. Uh, we've got a full-time staff member now. We've got other resources we're putting into it to help people on the ground make changes in their place. So there's there's a lot going on. And yeah, I, I'm actually booked. <laughs> I'm booked into October right now. And so, you know, we we try to schedule out events, but the calendar gets really full really quick. But yeah, traveling all over the country, uh, we try to make it to... I've been in every state uh, except Hawaii and Alaska, and I'm going to Hawaii for the first time in September. So we're going to try to make it to Alaska yet this year. But, you know, we try to get everywhere in the country at least uh, once every couple of years uh, to give people an opportunity to come out, meet each other. And I'm not able to announce it yet, uh, the exact details, but I will say we're partnering with another uh, organization that does a national conference to do a Strong Towns conference next year. So we're going to be inviting, you know, hundreds, uh, maybe thousands of people from around the country who are interested in this uh, to come and hang out with us for a while and, and talk Strong Towns. Excellent. How do, how do people get a hold of you uh, other than just uh, through the website? Through the website's the best way. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's okay. uh, my, all my contact information is there. I'm on, I'm on every social media platform too. People are listening on LinkedIn. You can get a hold of me there. Twitter, I'm there. Facebook, there. Perfect. Try to be as responsive as I can. Yeah. No, uh, no but, worries. Well, I, yeah. from my, me personally, thank you so much. Oh, um, thank you. We will definitely have you back on again. It's just been, it's been fantastic. And I'm, I'm amazed yet again that we've gone an hour. We could, we could just keep going on and on. I, I think I really appreciate you coming, JJ. Yeah, Chuck. I mean, it, it's a little more personal for me because of our background, but um, yeah. Just elated that you chose the time to to be on our podcast and share your wealth of knowledge with build, the people of Building Arizona because I, I just encourage all the listeners and the audience to dive deeper into what Chuck's message is. Once I went there, um, you know, especially with me, I mean, I make my money off of development and building. And yet when I look through the lens that I, it was always there for me, Chuck just let me see it in a better light. And I realized that, oh, this is who I was destined to be. And I think the more that we do that, then I'm part of that movement as well. So as, as a disciple of, of the movement itself, it, it's a very clean and rewarding way of, of, of being profitable, you know, having capitalism, but yet having it mean something more than what we're just doing. So thanks from the bottom of my heart, Chuck. Well, thank you, friend. And you've been an important part of my journey too. Uh, all the times we spent chatting and and. and trying to figure out life uh, is very <laughs> meaningful to me. So it's, it's cool to be able to sit here and talk to you again like this. I am very grateful. You've been listening to The Mac and Blue Show, brought to you by Tory Contracting and Blue Wave General Contracting. Be sure to subscribe to The Mac and Blue Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow Robert Johnson and JJ Levensky on LinkedIn and Instagram. Tune in live every first and third Thursday at 3 p.m. as we continue to introduce you to the people building Arizona. Walt Disney said, you can dream, create, design, and build the most wonderful place in the world, but it requires people to make the dream a reality. Until next time, make it a great day.